Chapter sixty four of Peter Simple. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anthony Gerges. Peter Simple by Frederick Marriott. Chapter sixty four. As O'Brien said, it's a long lane that has no turning. I am rescued, and happiness pours in upon me as fast as misery before overwhelmed me. The shock was too great. I fell back on my pillow insensible. How long I lay, I know not, but when I recovered, the keeper was gone, and I found a jug of water and some bread by the side of the bed. I drank the water, and the effect it had upon me was surprising. I felt that I could get up, and I rose. My arms had been unpinioned during my swoon. It was about noon that the medical people, attended by the keepers and others, came into my apartment. Is he quite quiet? Oh, Lord, yes, sir, as quiet as a lamb, replied the man who had before entered. I then spoke to the medical gentleman, betting him to tell me why and how I had been brought here. He answered mildly and soothingly, saying that I was there at the wish of my friends, and that every care would be taken of me, that he was aware that my paroxysms were only occasional, and that, during the time that I was quiet, I should have every indulgence that I could be granted, and that he hoped that I should be perfectly well and be permitted to leave the hospital. I replied by stating who I was, and how I had been taken ill. The doctor shook his head, advised me to lie down as much as possible, and then quitted me to visit the other patients. As I afterwards discovered, my uncle had had me confined upon the plea that I was a young man who was deranged with the idea that his name was Simple, and that he was the heir to the title and estates, that I was very troublesome at times, forcing my way into his house and insulting the servants, but in every other respect was harmless that my paroxysms generally ended in a violent fever, and that it was more from the fear of my coming to some harm than from any ill-will towards the poor young man that he wished me to remain in the hospital and be taken care of. The reader may at once perceive the art of this communication. I, having no idea why I was confined, would of course soon continue to style myself by my true name, and as long as I did this, so long would I be considered in a deranged state. The reader must not therefore be surprised when I tell him that I remained in Bedlam for one year and eight months. The doctor called upon me for two or three days, and finding me quiet, ordered me to be allowed books, paper, and ink to amuse myself. But every attempt at explanation was certain to be the signal for him to leave my apartment. I found, therefore, not only by him, but from my keeper, who paid no attention to anything I said, that I had no chance of being listened to or obtaining my release. After the first month, the doctor came to me no more. I was a quiet patient, and he received the report of the keeper. I was sent there with every necessary document to prove that I was mad, and although a very little may establish a case of lunacy, it requires something very strong indeed to prove that you are in your right senses. In Bedlam I found it impossible. At the same time, I was well treated, was allowed all necessary comforts and such amusements as could be obtained from books, etc. I had no reason to complain of the keeper, except that he was too much employed to waste his time in listening to what he did not believe. I wrote several letters to my sister and to O'Brien during the first two or three months, and requested that the keeper put them in the post. This he promised to do, never refusing to take the letters, but, as I afterwards found out, they were invariably destroyed. Yet I still bore up with the hopes of release for some time, but the anxiety relative to my sister, when I thought of her situation, my thoughts of Celeste and O'Brien, sometimes quite overcame me. Then indeed I would almost become frantic, and the keeper would report that I had a paroxysm. After six months I became melancholy, and I wasted away. I no longer attempted to amuse myself, but sat all day with my eyes fixed upon vacancy. I no longer attended to my person. I allowed my beard to grow, 
My face was never washed unless mechanically when ordered by the keeper, and if I was not mad, there was every prospect of my soon becoming so. Life passed away as a blank. I had become indifferent to everything. I noted time no more. The change of seasons was unperceived. Even the day and the night followed without my regarding them. I was in this unfortunate situation when one day the door was opened, and as had been by the custom during my imprisonment, visitors were going round the establishment to indulge their curiosity in witnessing the degradation of their fellow creatures or to offer their commiseration. I paid no heed to them, not even casting up my eyes. This young man, said the medical gentleman who accompanied the party, has entertained the strange idea that his name is Simple, and that he is the rightful heir to the title and property of Lord Privilege. One of the visitors came up to me and looked me in the face. "'And so he is,' cried he to the doctor, who looked with astonishment. "'Peter, don't you know me?' I started up. It was General O'Brien. I flew into his arms and burst into tears. "'Sir,' said General O'Brien, leading me to the chair and seating me upon it, "'I tell you that it is Mr. Simple, the nephew of Lord Privilege, and, I believe, the heir to the title. If, therefore, his assertion of such being the case is the only proof of his insanity, then he is illegally confined.' I am here, a foreigner, and a prisoner on parole, but I am not without friends, my Lord Belmore, said he, turning to another one of the visitors who had accompanied him. I pledge you my honor that I state is true, and I request you immediately demand the release of this poor young man. I assure you, sir, that I have Lord Privilege's letter, observed the doctor. Lord Privilege is a scoundrel, replied General O'Brien, but there is justice to be obtained in this country, and he shall pay dearly for his lettre de cachet. My dear Peter, how fortunate was my visit to this horrid place. I have heard so much of the excellent arrangements of this establishment that I agreed to walk around with Lord Belmore, but I find that it is abused. Indeed, General O'Brien, I have been treated with kindness, replied I, and particularly by this gentleman. It was not his fault. General O'Brien and Lord Belmore then inquired of the doctor if he had any objection to my release. None whatever, my lord, even if he was insane, although I see now that I have been imposed upon. We allow the friends of any patient to remove him, if they think that they can pay him more attention. He may leave with you this moment. I now did feel my brain turn with the revulsion from despair to hope, and I fell back to my seat. The doctor, perceiving my condition, bled me copiously and laid me on the bed where I remained more than an hour watched by General O'Brien. I then got up, calm and thankful. I was shaved by the barber of the establishment, washed and dressed myself, and leaning on the General's arm, was let out. I cast my eyes upon two celebrated stone figures of melancholy and raging madness as I passed them. I trembled and clung more tightly to the general's arm, was assisted into the carriage, and bade farewell to madness and misery. The general said nothing until we approached the hotel where he resided in Dover Street, and then he inquired in a low voice whether I could bear more excitement. Is it Celeste you mean, general? It is, my dear boy. She is here, and he squeezed my hand. Alas, cried I, what hopes have I now of Celeste? more than you had before replied the general she lives but for you and if you are a beggar i have a competence to make you sufficiently comfortable i returned the general's pressure of the hand but could not speak we descended and in a minute i was led by the father into the arms of the astonished and delighted daughter i must pass over a few days during which i almost recovered my health and spirits and had narrated my adventures to general o'brien and celeste my first object was to discover my sister, what had become of poor Ellen, in the destitute condition in which she had been left, I knew not, and I resolved to go down to the vicarage and make inquiries. I did not, however, set off until a legal adviser had been sent for by General O'Brien, and due notice given to Lord Privilege of an action to be immediately brought against him for false imprisonment. 
I set off in the mail, and the next evening arrived in the town of Blank. I hastened to the parsonage, and the tears stood in my eyes as I thought of my mother, my poor father, and the peculiar and doubtful situation of my dear sister. I was answered by a boy in livery, and found the present incumbent at home. He received me politely, listened to my story, and then replied that my sister had set off for London on the day of his arrival, and that she had not communicated her intentions to anyone. He then was all clue lost, and I was in despair. I walked to the town in time to throw myself into the mail, and the next evening joined Celeste and the general, to whom I communicated the unpleasant intelligence, and requested advice how to proceed. Lord Belmore called the next morning, and the general consulted him. His lordship took great interest in my concerns, and previous to any further steps, advised me to step into his carriage and allow him to relate my case to the first lord of the admiralty this was done immediately and as i had now the opportunity of speaking freely to his lordship i explained to him the conduct of captain hawkins and his connection with my uncle also the reason of my uncle's persecution his lordship finding me under such powerful protection as lord belmore and having eye to my future claims which my uncle's conduct gave him reason to suppose were well founded was extremely gracious and said that i should hear from him in a day or two he kept his word and on the third day after my interview i received a note announcing my promotion to the rank of commander i was delighted with his good fortune as was general o'brien and celeste when at the admiralty i inquired about o'brien and found that he was expected home every day he had gained great reputation in the East Indies, was chief in command at the taking of some of the islands, and, it was said, was to be created a baronet for his services. Everything wore a fashionable respect, except the disappearance of my sister. This was a weight on my mind I could not remove. But I have forgotten to inform the reader by what means General O'Brien and Celeste arrived so opportunely in England. Martinique had been captured by our forces about six months before, and the whole of the garrison surrendered as prisoners of war. General O'Brien was sent home and allowed to be on parole, although born a Frenchman, he had very high connections in Ireland, of whom Lord Belmore was one. When they arrived, they had made every inquiry for me without success. They knew that I had been tried by a court-martial and dismissed my ship, but after that, no clue could be found for my discovery. Celeste, who was fearful that some dreadful accident had occurred to me, had suffered very much in health, and General O'Brien, perceiving how much his daughter's happiness depended upon her attachment for me, had made up his mind that if I were found, we should be united. I hardly need to say how delighted he was when he discovered me, though, in a situation so little to be envied. The story of my incarceration of the action to be brought against my uncle and the reports of foul play relative to the succession had, in the meantime, been widely circulated among the nobility, and I found that every attention was paid me and I was repeatedly invited out as an object of curiosity and speculation. The loss of my sister also was a subject of much interest, and many people from goodwill made every inquiry to discover her. I had returned one day from the solicitors, who had advised for her in the newspapers without success, when I found a letter for me on the table in an admiralty enclosure. I opened it. The enclosure was one from O'Brien, who had just cast anchor at Spithead, and who had requested that the letter should be forwarded to me if anyone could tell my address. My dear Peter, where are and what has become of you? I have received no letters for these two years, and I have fretted myself to death. I received your letter about the rascally court-martial, but perhaps you have not heard if the little scoundrel is dead. Yes, Peter, he brought your letter out in his own ship, and that was his death warrant. I met him at a private party. He brought up your name. I allowed him to abuse you, and then I told him that he was a liar and a scoundrel, upon which he challenged me, very much against his will, but the affront was so public that he could not help himself. 
upon which I shot him with all the good will in the world, and could he have jumped up again twenty times like Jack in the Box, I would have shot him every time. The dirty scoundrel! But there's the end of him. Nobody pitied him, for everyone hated him, and the admiral only looked grave, and then was very much obliged to me for giving him a vacancy for his nephew. By the by, from some unknown hand, but I presume from the officers of his ship, I received a packet of correspondence between him and your worthy uncle, which is about as elegant a piece rascality as ever was carried on between two scoundrels. But that's not all, Peter. I have a young woman for you who will make your heart glad. Not Mademoiselle Celeste, for I don't know where she is, but the wet nurse who went out to India. Her husband was sent home as an invalid, and she was allowed her passage home with him in my frigate. Finding that she belonged to the regiment, I talked to her about one O'Sullivan who married in Ireland, and mentioned the girl's name, and when he discovered that she was a countryman of mine, he told me that his real name was O'Sullivan, sure enough, but that he had always served as O'Connell, and that his wife on board was the young woman in question, upon which I sent to speak to her, and telling her that I knew all about it, and mentioning the names of Ella Flangan and her mother, who had been given me the information, she was quite astonished and when i asked her what had become of the child which she took in place of her own she told me that it had been drowned at plymouth and that her husband was saved at the time by a young officer whose name i have here says she and then she pulled out of her neck your card with peter simple on it now says i do you know good woman that in helping on the rascally exchange the children you ruin that very young man who saved your husband for you deprive him of his title and property she stared like a struck pig when I said so, and then cursed and blamed herself, and declared she'd write you as soon as we came home, and most anxious she is still to do so, for she loves the very name of you. So you see, Peter, a good action has its reward sometimes in this world, and a bad action also, seeing as how I've shot that confounded villain who dared to ill-use you. I have plenty more to say to you, Peter, but I don't like writing what perhaps may never be read. So I'll wait till I hear from you, and then, as soon as I get through my business, we will set to and trounce that scoundrel of an uncle. I have twenty thousand pounds jammed together in the consolidated, besides the Spice Islands, which will be a pretty penny, and every farthing of it shall go to right you, Peter, and make a lord of you, as I promised you often that you should be, and if you win, you shall pay, and if you don't, then damn the luck and damn the money too. I beg you will offer my best regards to Miss Ellen, and say how happy I shall be to hear that she is well. But it has always been on my mind, Peter, that your father did not leave too much behind him, and I wish to know how you both got on. I left you a carte blanche at my agent's, and I only hope that you have taken advantage of it if required. If not, you're not the Peter that I left behind me. So now, farewell, and don't forget to answer my letter in no time. Ever yours, Terence O'Brien. This was indeed joyful intelligence. I handed the letter to General O'Brien, who read it celeste hanging over his shoulder and perusing it at the same time this is well said the general peter i wish you joy and celeste i ought to wish you joy also at your future prospects it will indeed be gratification if ever i hail you as lady privilege celeste said i you did not reject me when i was penniless and in disgrace oh my poor sister ellen if i could find but you how happy should i be I sat down to write to O'Brien, acquainting him with what had occurred, and the loss of my dear sister. The day after the receipt of my letter, O'Brien burst into the room after moments of the congratulation were passed. He said, My heart's broken, Peter, about your sister Ellen. Find her I must. I shall give up my ship, for I'll never give up the search. As long as I live, I must find her. Do pray, my dear O'Brien, and, and I only wish—wish wish what, Peter? 
Shall I tell you what I wish? That if I find her, you'll give her to me for my trouble. We then turned around to General O'Brien and Celeste. Captain O'Brien, said the general. Sir Terence O'Brien, if you please, general. His majesty has given me a handle to my name. I congratulate you, Sir Terence, said the general, shaking him by the hand. What I was about to say is that I hope you will take your quarters in this hotel, and we will all live together. I trust that we will soon find Ellen. In the meantime, we have no time to lose in our exposure of Lord Privilege. Is the woman in town? Yes, and under lock and key. But the devil fear of her. Millions would not bribe her to wrong him who risked his life for her husband. She's Irish, General, to the backbone. Nevertheless, Peter, we must go to our solicitor to give the intelligence that he may take the necessary steps. For three weeks, O'Brien was diligent in his search for Ellen, employing every description of emissary without success. In the meantime, the general and I were prosecuting our cause against Lord Privilege. One morning, Lord Belmore called us and asked the general if he would accompany him to the theatre to see two celebrated pieces performed. In the latter, which was a musical farce, a new performer was to come out of whom reports spoke highly. Celeste consented, and after an early dinner, we joined his lordship in his private box, which was above the stage on the first tier. The first piece was played, and Celeste, who had never seen the performance of Young, was delighted. The curtain then drew up for the second piece. In the second act, the new performer, Miss Henderson, was led by the manager on the stage. She was apparently much frightened and excited, but three rounds of applause gave her courage, and she proceeded. At the very first notes of her voice, I was startled, and O'Brien, who was behind, threw himself forward to look at her. But as we were almost directly above, and her head was turned the other way, we could not distinguish her features. As she proceeded in her song, she gained courage, and her face was turned towards us, and she cast her eyes up, saw me. The recognition was mutual. I held up my arm, but could not speak. She staggered and fell down in a swoon. "'Tis Ellen!' cried O'Brien, rushing past me, and making one spring down on the stage, she carried her off before any other person could come to her assistance. I followed him and found him with Ellen still in his arms, and the actress assisting in her recovery. The manager came forward to apologize, stating that the young lady was too ill to proceed, and the audience, who had witnessed the behavior of O'Brien and myself, were satisfied with the romance in real life which had been exhibited. Her part was read by another, but the piece was little attended to, everyone trying to find out the occasion of this uncommon occurrence. In the meantime, Ellen was put into a hackney coach by O'Brien and me, and we drove to the hotel, where we were soon joined by the General and Celeste. End of chapter 64